Welcome to another edition of Anglican Unscripted, episode 695. I'm Kevin Coulson. I'm George Conger. Today's October 26th, 2021. All right, people, welcome to another show of Anglican Unscripted. We are glad you could join us. I'm joining you from the roadside of Interstate 75, where cars are zipping back and forth via this little uh, cracker barrel. I'm going to pull up my map so you can see where, where by the time this episode is on the internet and you're watching it, I'm not here anymore, so I, I guess for safety purposes it's okay if I show it. But here we are. You can see that's the southeast of America. And I'm going to zoom in. And, oh, you see Atlanta there. Well, we are in Macon, Georgia, uh, right here in the interstate. We're heading south. Uh, we're going back to Webster to uh, spend the winter. Uh, we decided to cut our plans short of going to Charleston and Savannah area because the long-term forecast, George, was cold and rain. And Jill and I made an executive decision. We could be in Florida where it's warm, dry, and happy. So we're, we're moving south. How you been doing, George? Well, I'm warm, dry, and happy. Uh, it's a beautiful day. It's in the high 70s, no rain in the forecast, sun is shining, low humidity. Uh -huh. But the rain uh, is where my daughter is in Northern California. It's a mess uh, out there. Have you been watching the news? They're going through, you can't call it a nor'easter, it must be a west'easter. Because you know, wave after wave after wave of these rain showers have been taking out all of California, and they don't get a lot of rain if you watch the weather reports. She, uh, she, the so, so Susan wrote to her, uh, well, texted her saying, uh, "Now be careful, stock up on food, get some flashlights, candles, you know, the whole." Because we're we're used to preparing for hurricanes in Florida. And Laura said, well, not worried, because I'm going to go to a concert this weekend, a uh, festival concert uh, of folk music or hippy-dippy music. Woodstock. And, <laughs> oh, gosh. And so Susan and I were on Knife's Edge all weekend as our daughter is uh, avoiding mudslides and torrential downpours to go hear uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary type music and, uh, be, and wear hippy-dippy clothing and everything. Sure. Well, I mean, you, you got to let loose once in a while. And uh, uh, California is kind of the state where you just let loose on laws, society, music, drugs, rock and roll. Um, you and I certainly she's remember. She's a nurse, well, she's yeah. nurse, and she's quite severe about narcotics use because mm -hmm. she's a psychiatric nurse. Sure. And she sees smoking, tattoos, and narcotics abuse are the three constants in her patients at the state psychiatric hospital where she works. Mm. So Laura can't stand smoking, she can't stand narcotics, and she can't stand tattoos because that's sort of the signs for her in her work of uh, the end times. Yeah, the end times and you're gonna be putting in some overtime. No, absolutely. Uh, all right, George, we have a good story of the week. We talked, I think last week or the episode before, about aging out as a priest that uh, the Diocese of Melbourne uh, was going to revisit their age limitations. The Episcopal Church has age limitations. Uh, most provinces around the world, when you get to a certain age, you have to turn in your your cards that uh, allow you to be a full-time priest. And, well, 
we actually read about it a, a priest who made it all the way to the century mark and he was still a priest but i think the bishop is finally putting his foot down here george yes one of our readers sent us a, a link to a new york times article i believe it's in beaumont texas the pastor of Cristo Rey Roman Catholic Church was asked by his bishop to return to the monastery from whence he came. He's an Augustinian, came from Spain, and the thing is he's been at that parish for 70 years, and he's now just reached the hundred mark, and his mind is still sharp, he still preaches, you know, twice on Sunday, hears confessions, does pastoral visits. He's a hundred years old, he's just not as spry as he used to be. And the bishop said, at 100, I think, you know, time to go back to the monastery and desert, get a well-earned rest. Now, the Catholic Church requires you to turn in your papers at 75, but they don't have to accept them. And so you can continue at the good graces of your bishop as long as you're fit and able. And I think here's a wonderful example of that uh, in well, I, Florida. I, I, in, I, I, and in, the funny thing is, in Florida, People in their 80s and 90s, I see every day with full possession of their faculties, of their physical uh, capabilities. Not everybody's a total wreck like me. Um, no, there are a lot of William Shatners out there who at 90 uh, can fly away in rocket ships. Now, it's interesting because there is that hard line where, okay, at 70, you have to resign your, your position as a priest of a church. But like you said, not all bishops accept that right away. Um, I certainly mentioned a, a case uh, at a church we were at where you know, it went a little longer because the bishop couldn't find somebody else to replace them. Well, that's the advantage of being the rector here in Hooterville. Uh, um, if I play my cards right and don't have a stroke, I could stretch this out as long as I'd like. <laughs> uh, all right. No, but it, 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 it's a good topic because... Um, in this day and age, it's hard to find replacement priests to, to always be able to, to fill uh, the coffers of, uh, of priestdom. And uh, we see that, especially in the Episcopal Church, where they're allowing priests to go a little longer um, until they can find a replacement. Uh, let's well, move one on. of the wonderful things, yeah. well, I just want to mention, one of the wonderful things in reading a 19th century English Church of England history is to read about these rectors who were in post for 50, 60 years because there was no mandatory retirement age. Mm -hmm. And now some of them uh, employed curates to do all the work, but I, I think there's something special about having that lifelong relationship with a congregation and a community where you really are the, uh, uh, the uh, you do really do have the cure of the souls in a, an area. Yeah, we visited uh, a wonderful church in Knoxville uh, for Sunday's worship, uh, Apostles Church, and it was a young, vibrant church, young priest, who, you know, in days gone past, you would see a 30-ish, a 40-ish year old priest go the whole 20 at a church. Um, I was within the Episcopal Church where kind of every four to eight there was some type of rotation. It's time to move on. There was never kind of that, that stellar person who was going to be in that seat of leadership in your church for the, the whole time of his ministry. Well, uh, the ideal, I think, is to put in 20, 25 years after you've had your initial training in curacy and you make all your mistakes elsewhere and then once you know what you're doing, you then go and do your job well. Cool. 
All right, let's move on to some other news. Um, we alluded to this in our last story that uh, the Church of England was going to take up, discuss, and try and make some rules around assisted suicide and whether or not they would support it as the Church of England. And we mentioned at the time that one famous archbishop happened to be in, in favorite and other famous archbishops of Canterbury were not in favorite. Uh, they discussed it. Lo and behold, the Church of England officially does not support uh, assisted suicide right now. But it was interesting to see these debates, and you posted them online, and you were surprised by the response. Yes, this was a seven-hour debate on the 22nd of October in the House of Lords on a private member's bill, which means it wasn't put forward by the government, but by a, a sitting member of the House of Lords, to allow assisted suicide or euthanasia. And the Church of England's bishops, I believe 20 or 24, have a seat in the House of Lords. And some bishops who have been made permanent life peers uh, also have seats. So Johnson Tamu, George Carey, Robin Eames of the Church of Ireland, the primate, mm -hmm. uh, Richard Harries from Oxford. Well, every single one of those bishops, uh, from Johnson Tamu to the Bishop of Durham, the former Bishop of Oxford, Justin Welby, uh, all spoke cogently and firmly against allowing assisted suicide. And there was only one cleric who spoke in favor of it, and that was George Carey. And this is probably the one and only time that I can recall where I'm actually on the side opposite of George Carey on a issue of moral, uh, uh, ethical issue i think he's mistaken in his thinking but i'm because uh, i don't think i think every life is worth living and the uh artificial to say you know it is not our call to end people's lives well i mean, it's a fundamental question within christianity can god use suffering and i think the answer historically in the text we have in the Old and New Testament, uh, in our history as a church, in our experience, and in our reason and rationale, yeah, he can use suffering. We would prefer he would not use suffering, but in the times he has used suffering, he has drawn people closer to him. There are very few stories in church history where uh, suffering has, has not benefited that character in Bible history, George. Long-term viewers of Anglican Unscripted will remember when I was paralyzed. I think that was six or seven or maybe, even, no. Yeah, I've been here eight years, ten yeah. years ago. And the uh, uh, suffering I went through, uh, it was funny. I would wear a huge fixed collar, and then I had my cassock on, but I couldn't use my hands. I had no, you know, waist down, uh, was paralyzed from the wrists, elbows forward, paralyzed, and a tremendous pain. And that experience in my life has made me a better person, a better priest, um, moving me from sympathy to empathy, mm -hmm. understanding the place of pain and suffering in God's world. So I'm a, I'm a human example of God's use of suffering for his good. Mm -hmm. Now, I would rather have read this in an essay and said, okay, well, that's a good idea. I'll do it this way. <laughs> yeah. But God needed to take a two-by-four, hit me in the back of the head, and uh, straighten me out. 
Yeah, I mean, and I don't have a time to li- list them all here now. There are so many books written about Christians who've suffered, uh, and they're, they're first-hand accounts, and how these people who suffered have drawn closer to the Father through this suffering and drew other people closer with them uh, and enjoyed this, this great magnetism of being a witness to a relationship through suffering. And one of the things that we saw in the debates in the House of Lords was that several bishops spoke of the value of palliative care and that uh, suffering to no point, suffering uh, so that God loves you is not really what we're there we're talking about. Um, they were saying that, you know, it doesn't need to be this way. Mm-hmm. And my experience as a hospice chaplain told me this was true. I don't think I ever in this maybe thousand plus patients I worked with over the six, seven years I was a chaplain, I don't think there was anybody who was at such a point that they um, would have been better off dead. Now, plenty of people are so depressed and sad they wish it would end and so on and so forth. But that's where uh, palliative care and the chaplain and the and the whole team comes in to walk with that person and allow natural death to take place, not to cut it short. And I think artificial means. In, in our Christian experience, if you want a recent example, it would be uh, Pope John Paul II, who mm-hmm. suffered so greatly from Parkinson's in his end years. And people were like, well, you're going to be a Pope with Parkinson's. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to be a Pope with Parkinson's, and you're going to watch what it's like for me to go through that as Pope. And on to the end. Uh, I don't intend to step down early. I don't intend to let anything except what's naturally going to happen to me as as your pope uh, happen to me because there is a witness in the suffering there is a witness in how this uh, happens in end stages and it was it was remarkable to watch that happen uh, people oh he'll hold out for years on his deathbed no it was relatively fast george yeah. all right let's move on to other news we talked about albany last week that they were going to have a uh, discussion of some canonical rules. Some people brought forth some resolutions that said, listen, it's too burdensome to have a canon that says you must be married to a person of the opposite sex or be, what's that word I'm looking for? Celibate. Starts with a C. Yep, celibate. Uh, If you're going to be a priest. And they had these resolutions. We said, we didn't know what was going to happen. We did know it was going to be discussed. What did Albany do in the end, George? Well, this is all tied back to the Bill Love controversy, where Bishop Love refused to go along with the majority of the Episcopal Church House of Bishops on gay marriage. Albany has two canons, meaning they're the rules of the diocese that forbid uh, clergy to engage, you know, they define marriage between a man and a woman. Everybody else must be celibate. And then they say, no priest may officiate, celebrate, bless, whatever you want, a same-sex marriage blessing on any church property, be it in the church itself or in the garden or at the camp, whatever. And the liberals in the diocese wanted to drop those canons so that Albany is just like central New York and Vermont. And the standing committee let it go ahead. And the debate began and it was conducted via Zoom because of the uh, COVID crisis. And we heard sort of uh, 
what we would expect of her. The liberals say, how can I go home and tell my gay brothers and sisters that we can't bless their loving and wonderful relationships? Um, and then other people saying, we can't do this because this is contrary to God's law and to God's will. And others were saying, well, you know, we really shouldn't take this step until we have a bishop. We don't have a bishop right now. We have an acting bishop, um, Bishop Smith, the former bishop of North Dakota, but he, but we're going to in the process of electing a new one. We shouldn't hand him the finished package. Well, then the rector of the church in Ticonderoga, New York, came forward and said, you know, I don't like debating this issue via Zoom because not all of us are computer savvy. Signals drop. Um, we're not able to sort of get the feel of each other. And let's just not do this right now. Postpone any consideration of this until we have an in-person meeting. And so the convention changed their rules of order so that you may only vote on canonical and constitutional changes in an in-person meeting of synod. So now what this means is that they're going to schedule synod every flu season for the next 25 <laughs> years and do it by Zoom. So actually, this is the perfect way out that prevents them from being attacked by the national church or the crazies, uh, but at the same time be faithful to what they believe. It is a half measure of course mm -hmm. but sometimes uh, this is a more prudent way to go forward than to decide uh, this is the ditch we're going to die in and have Catherine Sheffert, Jeffrey Shore come in and depose two-thirds of the clergy well, but this is unique because it does allow in a, a period where they're between bishops for all intents and purposes to let's table this uh, until another time and I have to agree, as a technologist, Zoom is not the perfect time to be talking about canonical changes to your diocese. Um, and you're going to have to talk about it someday. Uh, be prepared. Indeed. But the other thing is, it was a two-to-one vote in favor. And what I take away from that is, is that there's not uh, enthusiasm to change the canons in the Diocese of Albany. But once they have a bishop, and they can sort of meet and strategize. How do we maintain our distinctiveness mm -hmm. without getting in the gun sights of the crazies in the Episcopal Church? Having said that, after just losing Bishop Love to the crazies. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good point. You know, we love the Diocese of Albany, and uh, we certainly uh, hope for their future, but you know, they're dealing with the machine, George. They're dealing with a man, and <laughs> to see what happens. Uh, when I was in my final year seminary, I interviewed to be a curate at St. John's Church in Ogdensburg, New York. Wow. And it was February when I drove up there, and I'm so happy I wound up in Florida <laughs> instead of on the Canadian border in February in New York. I oh, went up wow. there for some event that I videotaped at the cathedral. I don't remember what the, what the event was, but... Uh, all of a sudden, in the middle of nowhere, an ice storm starts. And I'm on one of these interstates, and people are just uh, spinning off the interstate. And I'm like, I'm never going to make it. I'm never going to make it. You know, an hour later, I showed up. But that's just that's the, the uniqueness of northeastern weather. And then they have the nor'easters on top of that. And then they have lake effect. Lake effect is where you have lake effect rain and lake effect snow. And it just piles on 
to those people living in Albany and Buffalo and New York, right off those big lakes. George, let's move on. Uh, great fan and friend of the show is uh, uh, Bishop Manira Nice. Uh, he's been in and out of Anglican Scripted News since the beginning. Uh, he's one of those famous uh, archbishops and leaders in the church who's, I would say, uh, level one, top leadership. Uh, been there from the start and has been on the right side of history within the church. He was recently interviewed, and I thought we could discuss that interview here in the show um, because he, he once again, and you and I saw this when we were in Jamaica, wants to rely on a covenant to help fix the problems of the Anglican Communion. I am opposed to a covenant, not because a covenant isn't a great idea, it's because who would be in charge of the covenant? Who would enforce it? And he also mentions changing the leadership at the primates level. Who should be the leader of the primates? Right now, and on paper, it's always been the Archbishop of Canterbury. The See of Canterbury is the, is the defunct, defunct, default leader. No, defunct. We can say defunct at this point. Defunct leader of uh, the Anglican Communion. He wants it to be kind of the, the primates of the primates. Somebody elected by the primates to be the leader. We've discussed many times these topics on the show. What are our thoughts, George, on the covenant and uh, this interview with the uh, uh, Munir. Munir spoke uh, to the Prayer Book Society's Anglican Way publication, and he had an in-depth interview about his time as Bishop of Egypt and as Archbishop of the Church, Episcopal Church in Jerusalem, the Middle East, and finally as the first primate of the Anglican province of Alexandria. And so it's very interesting about his history. You know, he was a medical doctor until middle age, and then was ordained a priest, and rapidly became a bishop after that. Um, so he, he's a high flyer, a uh, very bright man, very uh, uh, hardworking. He used to be a doctor. And, and uh, he, well, he still is a doctor. Still a doctor. And still a doctor. Physician. Physician. Yeah. Uh, medical doctor. And he uh, uh, spoke about two issues that he hopes to see and that the Global South uh, Fellowship of Anglican Churches will pursue. The first is to, is to resurrect the Anglican Covenant which died at the ACC meeting in uh, Kingston, Jamaica. When was that, Kevin? 2008 yes, or 2009? Yes, we were there. It was uh, right around the time of the, the formation of the ACNA, so 2008. Well, Munir is saying that really the best way forward is the covenant process where there are rules for membership in the Anglican Communion. And if you violate these set rules, you're out. And he's hoping that the covenant process can be resurrected um, and the Anglican Communion can basically get out of its current anarchy by having this, uh, uh, these standards. Now, my concern is as what you mentioned, who interprets and enforces the rules, and second, are the people who voted against it uh, the first time going to sign up to it now yeah i i don't yeah would the covenant have as much support it, it started to have a little bit of support back in jamaica um we saw that we saw a lot of discussion a lot of people said yeah i would sign on it if it had this so at a certain point you have a covenant that's 40 pages long 
you know and how do you enforce a 40 page covenant with all the rules and intricacies of international vocabularies and also and this should be the greatest lesson to the Anglican communion who when they had the primates gathering in London got everything they wanted out of Justin Welby and its enforcement of the Episcopal Church. Justin Welby agreed to a moratorium on leadership of the Episcopal Church in the Anglican Communion for three years. Said, if that's what the primates want, that's what I'm going to do. The primates said, great, everybody was happy. Justin, would you administer and enforce this? Well, of course I would. That I'd be honored to uh, administrate an enforcement uh, enforce these rules upon the Episcopal Church. Not but a few months later, we watch Michael Curry give the sermon at the wedding of Harry and Meghan. There's your enforcement. Well, a, few months, <laughs> a few years later, but the, the <laughs> Justin Welby uh, reneged on what most people thought yeah. was his job. Uh, to enforce the provisions of the covenant and there was never any attempt to enforce it because he interpreted it in such a way that it wasn't enforceable right and this is the problem uh, you have and this is what a lot of people in the Anglican world who come from a purely Western <coughs> mindset don't necessarily understand we have a story coming up about Ghana which is sort of touches the same issue some people are rule followers your wife is an engineer and is a rule follower. Mm -hmm. Other people uh, are rules or sort of suggestions about behavior. And there is no uniformity either culturally or even within the same societies about how we enforce or follow these rules. And at this stage, we have the people, we have no separation of power. We don't have an inspector general who is not under the a thumb of Archbishop Canterbury or somebody else who can call out people. Instead, the same people who made the rules, their judge, jury, prosecutor, and defense counsel all in one. And the answer is nothing ever happens. So the covenant, I think, in principle is a good idea, but it's a practical action. I don't think it's workable in this stage because we don't have the Vatican, a central administration, and we don't have the bishops around the world in uh, unity around one metropolitan, the way the Catholic Church does. Well, one of the fellowship, yeah. not a not a unitary body. A covenant will never work in the Anglican Communion, where there is no standards for accountability, and we have proven that over and over again over the decades. Um, so you're demanding people be accountable in a system that's already not accountable. Good luck. Yeah, I, I don't think that'll work. Uh, who should be in charge of the primates? Well, just, uh, Munir says that the Archbishop of Canterbury should no longer be the ex facto, uh, de facto leader of the Anglican Communion or the head of the primates committee. He should just be the primate of the Church of England. Uh, Church of All England. And now, now Rowan then, had mentioned this too. Rowan agreed with that. Rowan Williams brought this up at the past primates meeting, saying, look, the job of being Archbishop of Canterbury 
has huge demands on time in the English context because he has his diocesan responsibilities, his national responsibilities, and now on top of that, the international responsibilities. And he doesn't have the staff or the money or the time to do all three well. The Church of England's central bureaucracy couldn't care less about the Anglican communion and won't lift a finger to help him in those areas. Uh, the Anglican Consultative Council is too poor, too <laughs> inconsequential to basically political. stand as a international uh, secretariat. Yeah. And so Rowan suggested elevating someone from among the primates by vote of the primates to the primacy, first, you know, primus of the primates. And Munir is resurrecting this idea. Now, I think this has a much better chance because Justin Welby has proven himself or shown himself to the primates not to be the leader that Rowan Williams or George Carey uh, or even Robert Runcie was. <laughs> That's right. So we uh, we're in a right we're in a good movement in history where this could actually be achieved. Um, but the question well, then is money. Where would the money come from? Would the Church of England be willing to cough up what little money it does have to support something it doesn't control? Would the Episcopal Church be willing to pay for something that would basically be a stick beating it on its head? Because if it was by popular vote among the primates, the Global South is the leader holds the majority and they pick one of their own and would 815 want to send money to somebody who's going to beat them up where's the money coming from to make this work yeah and that's the the what would lambeth look like if the primates got to choose you know uh who's in charge what would uh the acc look like it would change the complete dynamic of a western liberal-led anglican communion to a global south or african-led global communion and i think that would change the dynamic uh a lot and we're going to talk in the next story about the uh the primate in nigeria and his thoughts on and, but, and but th at the same time one of the things that we've seen is that uh one of the failures of gafcon is that they don't have that bureaucratic tail of staffers that the way lambeth or the acc does to actually achieve some minimum minimal things like a magazine and communications and meetings it's always feast or famine with gafcon so there's really no alternative structures right now but the, in principle this is a very good idea I think. yeah so we'll have to see what happens uh maybe so. if they had a lambeth meeting and everybody showed up could they make this type of change at a lambeth meeting Certainly. Or is this only something they could do at a primates meeting? They could make this change at a Lambeth's meeting. Okay. And in fact, the primate of Sudan, Ezekiel Kondo, uh, who's the Bishop of Khartoum, Archbishop of Khartoum, said he hope he's also a member of GAFCON. He wants everybody from GAFCON to go to Lambeth mm -hmm. because we have the numbers and we can set the agenda. If we stay away, we give the game over to the other people. That's the point I've been pressing, and I'm glad the Archbishop of Khartoum is pressing that point. Now, he does have a problem, though, because yesterday there was a military coup, and the Islamists, uh, the, the radicals who persecuted the church, have seized power again, so he may have to focus his energies back on survival in, in Sudan. But uh, his point about, I believe, is a well-found well one, that there's strength in numbers.
And when we talk strength in numbers, we're not talking 51% to 49%. We're talking, you know, 70% to 30 Yeah, 70 75%. Enough that if you went there, you would have the agenda, you would have the microphones, and you could certainly say it's time to uh, uh, change how things work around the Anglican Communion because for the last many decades the Anglican Communion has been in this defunct position where they're not able to get things done on a spiritual, religious, gospel level. They can get all the mosquito nets where they need to go just fine. But as far as growing the church, it's not happening here in the West at all. So, all right. Next story, George. We saw an interview or a statement from the uh, statement, I'll say, a primate of Nigeria speaking to his thoughts about uh, Bishop Na uh, Michael Nazarali moving on to the Roman Catholic Church. You and I have talked about this almost three weeks in a row now. What does the primate of Nigeria say, George? Well, Henry Ndukuba, the Archbishop of Old Nigeria, uh, had a microphone put before his face by the Anglican. Uh, the, the Church of Nigeria's TV station was right. asked what he thought about Michael Nazarelli becoming a Catholic. And I want to put this in sort of a little context. Yes, because please. <laughs> he said something that if you read it, it doesn't seem say what it means. You need to have a little bit of understanding of how the Nigerian church thinks and operates. Mm -hmm. Essentially what he said is, well, if, my, if, this, if Michael Nazarelli believes this is the right for him, thing for him to do, then he should do it. Not controversial. And that's what uh, Foley Beach and Justin Welby and all these other people have said. And Kevin and, and George, then, we said that too. Okay. And then, just then, Mike Henry and Cuba said, but as for us, we will remain faithful to the gospel and to our Lord and Savior until the end of time and that our faithfulness will not be swayed. So what, how you understand this coming from the mouth of a Nigerian Archbishop for a Nigerian audience is, Michael Nazarelli has left the Christian faith for the apostate Church of Rome, the whore on the Tiber, uh, <laughs> because the Roman Catholic Church in its doctrines that are not biblical, hmm. This is good old, uh, you know, this is good old Reformation rhetoric uh, couched in, in African speaking rhythms and tropes. Um, and there's, there's been a lot of, uh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, to be fair to our, we have a large audience, okay? We have what I would call an ecumenical audience from the Romans, Methodists, Lutherans, Roman Catholic Church, lots of Anglicans. Um, are well represented in the people who watch the show. Yeah, Some of you, viewers. we have Mormon viewers. Yeah, which I still don't get, but yeah, well, yeah, whatever. And so, please understand this show as Anglican Unscripted is done in the Reformation context. I am solo scripture. That's you know that's that's the basis of my understanding uh, of the Church through the Thirty Nine Articles through the uh, Jerusalem uh, uh, statement, declaration, through all these things is, is the lens I see the church, and I see the gospel, and I see the kingdom. I see that through that lens. And 
One of the things in the comments of the shows that we've discussed, Michael Nazarali, mm -hmm. there have been a number of Catholic polemi polemicists who have come in and uh, ridiculed us, berated us, but because we have said this really doesn't affect the Anglican world that much. And how can you say that this is the beginning of the end? You know, Mike, look how many people from the Church of England have become Catholic, so on and so forth. But here's here's the context you need to understand it. The Anglican Church, the Church of England, and the Episcopal Church of the United States are a minuscule part of the Anglican world. The average Anglican is an African woman in her 30s. Mm -hmm. And the voice of the Archbishop of Nigeria really does reflect the, the global Anglican view. Foley Beach is a gentleman who has worked with Michael Nazarelli and has a personal relationship and is saddened by what he has done. Henry Ndekuba is a new primate from Nigeria, relatively new. Mm -hmm who has no real uh, ties to Michael Nazarelli out of personality and is speaking his mind as the leader of the largest church in the communion. And the largest church in the communion uh, is of the point that we will remain faithful to the Bible and not adopt these innovations that Rome has done in recent centuries. That we, We're not a new sect like the Catholic Church. We're the unchanging church of the apostles. Yes, that is as polemical a view from a Protestant side as some of the kooky comments we get on this on the comment page. Well, we but, we also this have really is, this really does, in my opinion, drive home the point that this will have no real effect on the Anglican world. Michael Nazarelli's defection. We also have a large the Anglican world is not the Church of England, right? And we also have a large Orthodox viewership. Please forgive me for not mentioning you in, in, in the in, up front there. And yes, and so you, I want the, the viewers to understand the context in with which George and I represent Anglicanism um, and deal ecumenically and deal um, brother to brother with other church entities. So, in our understanding, I don't want to get in a lot of trouble here, but uh, when you go into the comments and you do this super Roman Catholic uh, apologizius, um, you're not, no, or the Orthodox Church showing up in the comments trying to, to convert. No, not working. Methodist, good luck. <laughs> Lutherans, what are you doing? So you just understand the context and the lens that we report from. Uh, there's much more news out there. Uh, somebody may lose their job george over the uh, bishop and dyer situation happening over in uh the uk yeah give us an update well the times of london has a wonderful scoop or a coup they talked to several members of the inner circle the college of bishops of the scottish episcopal church the primus mark strange who's the primate he's a bishop a diocesan bishop as well as the primate or primus has been calling around trying to rally support because there's a push to get rid of him. Mark Strange, the article claims, was behind Ann Dyer's appointment as the Bishop of Aberdeen in Orkney. Dyer had a really had a lot of red flags in her resume as she was a uh, uh, seminary dean and had a really hard-nosed, nasty reputation there. And she, but Mark Strange was keen on having a woman bishop, especially a pro-gay woman bishop 
stuck in the one conservative diocese left in Scotland. That basically would then solve his problem of uh, these uh, recalcitrant people in Aberdeen and Orkney. So he put her in there by appointment, not by election or whatever. And she made a hash of it, a mess of it. And of course, the things we reported in the past, the complaints that finally led to two independent investigations, both found that she was totally unsuited to be bishop and recommended her immediate removal. And Strange said, well, let's do another one because I don't like this conclusion. The other bishops of the Church of Scotland are basically holding Strange responsible for this fiasco and are looking to get rid of him for mm-hmm. the Times reports. Well, let's see. I mean, that's, Ann Dyer has been a constant story on this show for at least six weeks. And uh, with Mark Strange, it may uh, go on for a couple more months. Interesting story to see how that works. All right, we need to finish up the show here because I need to keep driving to, to Webster. I'm going to be stuck in a Cracker Barrel parking lot all day. Uh, Ghana is in the news. <laughs> now, one of the things about the West and the United Nations and the uh, United States of America is who's in leadership from one time to another. And currently we have a very liberal leadership under uh, President Biden and his administration. The UN is led uh, currently by a very liberal leadership. And what they like to do with their power and influence is try to influence other nations around the world. Uh, Very famous was when Obama went to Africa and they were complaining about the sexual politics that Obama was bringing with him to Kenya and bringing with him to the the, the east coast of Africa. You know, they, they come in here and we like the visits and stuff like that and the the repartee and the discussions but you're you're having funded gender studies in our universities you're promoting lgtb uh rights in our states in our provinces in our countries and we don't want that we want to influence and have the influence of our own people make our own decisions autonomy that's what we want to do stop sending your money over here trying to for all intents and purposes, in in our ideal, destroy our countries. This was done by the U.S. in Afghanistan, where the University of Kabul, we gave money for gender studies and lesbian and gay equality, stuff that in the Afghan cultural milieu is just abhorrent. But that's how the money was spent, not on the things that they wanted or needed, but on what virtue signaling from the State Department and the Defense Department under many administrations. Uh, But now we have the liberals in the Church of England, specifically Jane Ozan, who is the screeching harpy of the uh, gay movement in the Church of England, saying, oh my goodness, the Archbishop of Canterbury must go in and discipline the Church of Ghana because the Church of Ghana is supporting a bill before the Ghanaian Parliament that would criminalize uh, uh, stiffen their sodomy laws where there would be a five-year penalty for homosexuality and a 10-year penalty for advocating and promoting gay groups. Jane Ozan has no clue how Africa works and her hysteria is purely well, it's hysteria. I don't, I don't want to psychoanalyze her. Yeah, you can't, you can't go much further than that. Rich opportunity. <laughs> yes. Okay, what's going on here? 
Ghanaian Parliament has a bill before it, which is titled the, I forget, but it basically is the Promotion of, of Ghanaian Family Values mm -hmm. bill. It's a longer title, but that's it, what it says. And it takes the country's sodomy laws. I'm not being nasty when I say that. That's the legal term that we use, that were introduced when Ghana became an independent republic, had been the Gold Coast, became Ghana in 1960. And its laws were introduced in 1963, where they updated the British penal code from colonial era to Ghana's own code. Those laws said that homosexual behavior was a misdemeanor crime punishable by three years imprisonment, and promotion of homosexuality was a crime uh, akin to sedition. Nobody since the early 1960s has ever been prosecuted under those laws. Mm -hmm. Now come the Biden administration and the EU and Boris Johnson and all these people and they've come into Ghana and they're setting up gay and lesbian student unions at the universities with government funding, foreign funding, gay and lesbian centers in the major cities, trying to promote gay rights, um, flying the rainbow flag on international whatever day in front of the embassies. And the Ghanaian Chiefs Council, the traditional rulers of Ghana, the tribal chiefs or kings, put forward a bill which was adopted by parliamentarians and the pre and to change the sodomy laws from three-year misdemeanor to a five-year uh, felony and the promotion of such acts through organizations and groups to a 10-year felony. Then hysterics, oh, this is the most vile law that's the most strict in the world. Well, no, it's not the most strict in the world. Try Saudi Arabia, North Korea, uh, most <laughs> oh, Islamic states. Oh, sorry, let's try Russia. Let's try China. I mean, you don't even have to go Islamic. You can go to communist countries and find the same thing. Well, here's the thing. In the explanatory notes, it says, we are putting forward this. I'm paraphrasing because yes. it's a 40-page bill. We are putting forward this rule to basically tell the Europeans and the Americans to butt out of our affairs. Yeah. We Ghanaians want to be Ghanaians. And this ha the bill has the support of the Anglican Church of Ghana, the Catholic Church, the Catholic Bishops Conference of Ghana, the Chief Imam of Ghana, and all the various uh, National Assembly, National Council of Churches in Ghana. It has overwhelming support not based on Jane Ozan's fanciful fears of homophobia, but on objections to the colonial mindset, colonialist mindset being imposed on them by foreigners. Yeah. If this law, it will pass, but guess what? I guarantee you, it will not be enforced except in a few showcases. Uh, there'll be a couple of showcases, absolutely. And let's be really clear here. This law would never have been proposed had not Ghana witnessed what the West is trying to do in their nation. And remember, folks, in Africa, laws are suggestions. Mm -hmm. They're not. So, you know, there's a joke I remember from the film, uh, from the TV series Yes Minister, mm -hmm. about EU regulations. Uh, only the English follow them to their detriment. The the Italians ignore them, uh, the Germans write them, and so on and so forth. But yeah. the point is, 
Africa does not have the English sensibility to rules and order. They're not Germans. They're not English. Mm -hmm. This is a statement of protest against the high-handed behavior of foreigners in Africa. Yeah. Right. And we will see, I, when it is passed, we will see one or two prominent Western-funded campaigners seek to, uh, just like Bowers versus Hardwick, we have test cases in the U.S. government, in the U.S. legal history, that were um, basically uh, politicized. Um, we will see that, but no, there's not a wave of homophobia arising in Ghana. No, um, oh, not not at all. In fact, and, and the other thing I want to mention is if you actually read the bill instead mm -hmm. of Jane Ozan's press release, the Ghanaian bill says, if you are convicted of uh, a sodomy offense, if you apologize and recant and try to get help, you're forgiven. Boom, all that. Now, I don't see Jane Ozan or any of the. Um, activist within the LGTB plus 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 community uh, take on Iran Iraq or any of the militant Islamic uh, countries that are out there who you are found in the act of homosexuality or accused of you die you are taken to the top of a building and thrown off Kevin um, I think you and I need to state so we don't give a club to our own crazies to sure. beat us we are not in favor of these laws. No, we are not. But not, not at all. Means. No. We're trying to explain how these have arisen, mm -hmm. but we're not promoting them or saying it's the right thing to do. We we're do just not. trying to explain to people so that they have some balance to the nuttiness coming mm -hmm. out of certain groups. Anglican TV, Anglican Scripted, Anglican.inc, George Conger, and Kevin Coulson do not support in any way, shape, or form sodomy laws. Okay? Harassment, persecution. We believe right. in meeting all people and creatures of God. Absolutely. Created by God. We do believe in national autonomy. If if Ghana wants to do this, all right, fine. Uh, but other than that, I, I don't want to see the can, act can, activist... Can well, hold on, let me finish. I don't want to see the activist just pinpoint Ghana and not go for the rest. If you're not going to go take on Iran and put in Iran in your press release, I'm not reading it. So, I, I Kevin, I th I don't think we should leave it in that sense because I think how how we I well I know what you think because uh, we talk <laughs> everybody so hard, but <laughs> it's not that it's okay for Ghana to do this, mm -hmm. but there are certain limits and boundaries where we need to keep our mouths shut. Mm -hmm. We cannot uh, we're at, we do not agree with these laws, but we have to respect the the of individual states and nations to chart their own course. I think the socialist path tracked by some countries is absolutely horrible. Um, I and But it's not my place to tell British politicians, for instance, what to do. Yeah. I may disagree, but I'm not going to use my our, our show to get into that level of political rancor. Yeah, but here I want to go back to this. Ghana is an example of Western influence going bad. Ghana is saying, stop it. Uh, we're going to make this law just because you're trying to influence us. We don't want your influence. We are trying to decolonize, and you're trying to recolonize. Stop it. Yeah, so. And what the Ghanaians will see is, just as in the past, the Nigeria has adopted similar type laws, and Justin Welby jumped up all 
jumped all over them. He's more vociferous on critiquing the Nigerians for their violations than he is uh, the Americans uh, for, for their violations. Um, for some people, capital punishment is a hot-button issue. Mm -hmm. And I think there are prior Anglo-Glambeth conference resolutions that urge the abolition of capital punishment. The United States is happy to go on with capital punishment. Yeah. Florida, we, 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 uh, Florida, we fry them. Uh, other places, gas them. Um, but we don't see any uh, actions by the Archbishop of Canterbury on those lines. It's mm -hmm. only certain interest groups get the Archbishop mobilized. And the Ghanaians, and the Nigerians, and most of the African continent is so... Uh, used to uh, there's it, that the Archbishop of Canterbury has no moral influence over yeah. as we've said before the office of the See of Canterbury is defunct um, George I, we've gone 55 minutes I'm sorry audience just a lot to talk about you had mentioned in our show notes you want you we talked about Alec Baldwin uh, do you want to cut the show short or just to give a quick PSA? Oh, I think we should talk about Alec Baldwin. That's a fun story. Okay. Fun so, in the uh, sense it's just interesting. Yeah, it, and my wife might actually watch this bit of the show. Okay, so, so PSA, uh, public service announcement. I am a gun aficionado. I enjoy uh, taking my gun to the range, target shooting, uh, teaching people how to use guns properly, gun safety. I am a member of the NRA. Uh, I am a certified in, in lots of different things. I have a concealed weapons permit that I can use in multiple states. Uh, I'm not going to talk about any more because uh, I also have a mobile vehicle that we don't need to bring any more distinction to what, I, what I'm talking about. And as such, you need to know the first rule of gun ownership or gunmanships or weapons. The first rule is a weapon is always loaded. But Kevin, I just checked it. It's not loaded. No, 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 no. Whether you checked it or somebody told you or somebody handed you the gun, for whatever intensive purposes, any weapon you see in your vicinity is a loaded weapon. You need to always have that in your mind. This is something I teach my kids from day one, early on. Um, it's the number one safety tip. But it's not loaded. Oh, yes, it is. This happened to Alec Baldwin. Never point a weapon at anything you do not intend to kill. That's the number two rule. If you understand rule one, and rule two, you can take out 99% of accidental shootings, accidental uh, uh, discharge of weapons. Uh, you can take out what happened to Alec Baldwin on the set of Rust, where he pointed a loaded gun at a camera and shot the camera person and the director who was uh, right behind her, killing her um, because it was a person who wasn't following the rules, George. Alan Dershowitz, the Harvard Law professor, uh, one of the greatest legal minds the uh, America's produced in the last 50 years, mm -hmm. uh, diddly uh, wrote an article about this case, and he said Alec Baldwin essentially uh, 
will be charged, in his opinion, either with manslaughter or negligent negligent homicide. Criminal homicide. Why? Because Baldwin was both the producer and the actor. There are very strict gun rules for movie sets. Baldwin, to save money, didn't follow all the rules. They didn't, in other words, there's several layers that the guns are kept locked in the safe. Uh, No live ammunition is allowed uh, on movie sets and so on and so forth. And they didn't do any of these things. And Baldwin was actually, and the only time you get a real working gun is when you're filming, not doing rehearsals. You use a replica gun for that. Baldwin was basically practicing quick draws and he did not was not aware that there were live rounds target rounds in the chamber that's why it went through the camera woman and into the into, it didn't just kevin how would you describe it the, the, uh, well there's two types of bullets there's a type of bullet that fragments and then there's target practice bullets that will just uh go right through your torso and into the person behind you so guess which one so so according to uh, according to alan dershowitz uh, alec baldwin is in big big trouble legally mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, he, good expensive lawyers will get him off with criminally negligent homicide uh, rather than manslaughter, but that's still a battle that's going to be fought. Now, before you race to the comments and tell me how much you hate guns, you can only comment on this in the negative way if you've ever turned off a movie because you saw a gun on a movie. Okay, that's <laughs> that's where I will only read comments where, okay, when I see guns in a movie, I just turn it off and won't watch it. Good, then you're allowed to comment on this, uh, this art, uh, this this new story. George, that's every, we got the PSA, we got nine or ten stories in here. We have completed Anglican Unscripted for this week. I'm Kevin Coulson. And I'm George Conger. And you've been watching episode 690. Yeah, 95. I'll go with 95. 95. 95. Yeah. Yeah. Of Anglican Unscripted.